Hey everyone, David Kern here. Just wanted to let you know about our friends over at Belmont Abbey College who would like to invite all current high school students to attend its summer program, SCOLA. Students will spend a week on their beautiful North Carolina campus just outside of Charlotte, engaging in great book seminars with other young men and women from around the country. You get a chance to go whitewater rafting, hiking, and visit, of course, the city of Charlotte in addition to all the academic things that are going on. More importantly than all that stuff, though, students will have the opportunity to build lasting friendships and have the time for reflection and prayer. Experience leisure in the best sense this summer at Belmont Abbey College's SCOLA program. For more, visit belmontabbeycollege.edu slash SCOLA. That's belmontabbeycollege.edu slash S-C-H-O-L-A. All right, and with that, here is today's episode. Hello, and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi, Tim, welcome to the show. How's it going? Thanks, David. Very well. Good, good. So we are here to discuss the ending, the last third or so of J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye. There is much to talk about. There were many questions online. And of course, next week we will answer more questions, which brings me to the spiel that I need to give before we get into the conversation. Because if you want to participate in that conversation or you want to ask a question, then the best way to do that is to join our Facebook discussion group. So if you head over to Facebook and you type in Close Reads in that search bar, you can click that join button and we will accept you there. Uh, we are Our arms are wide open over on the Facebook group. You also can follow us on Instagram at Close Reads Pods. And then of course, we have our newsletter, which is closereads.substack.com. Once every two weeks or so, sometimes once a week, uh, usually send out an email with some information on the, the future schedule. Maybe we'll answer some questions. We'll offer up some news. We'll post some links with some with some uh, background on the books or the authors we're talking about. Uh, so if you are interested in staying in touch in any of those ways, please do so. And of course, next week being the Q and A, we will post a thread at the end of the show on the Facebook page where you can post your questions, and we'll get to as many as we can next week. I have a I have a feeling there's going to be uh, plenty of, of questions out there on things that are uh, bothering people, or I guess that people love about the catcher in the rye. And speaking of which, let's dive right into that. So I want to start with a question that I was thinking about a lot while I was reading these last several chapters that that did come up last week. I think it prompted Tim to offer a offer a, a nice proverb for us. Uh, a, a What's a? Is, can we combine the term proverb and Tim together? I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but a Tim verb. Um, Tim verb. Yeah, a Tim verb. Tim, we talked about cynicism a mm-hmm. little bit last week, last time. I don't know if you recall. Do you recall talking about cynicism? I think you said something about how a uh, <laughs> every cynic is a disappointed oh, idealist oh, or something like that. Every every cynic is a broken-hearted idealist. Yeah, yeah. something yeah. like that. So I was thinking a lot while reading this, and as I got to the end, got, got near and near and near to the end, and was thinking about the experiences that Holden Caulfield was having with his friends and his sister and his parents kind of being on the periphery, and then, of course, the, the scene with uh, Mr. Antolini, which we will, of course, talk about. But I got to thinking, is Holden Caulfield a cynic? So I'd like to talk about that now that we've read the whole book. There's two questions about cynicism that I want to kind of talk about because I think this is a book that gets accused of being cynical. So on the one hand, is our character Holden Caulfield a cynic? A cynic? And then on the other hand, is the book itself, Salinger's book, a cynical book? Which of those do you want to talk about first? Heidi, which do we want to talk about first? The book or the character? You're, you're on mute, so... 
I think Sorry. I'm like... on mute. Yes. <laughs> I definitely answered that right away with character. <laughs> and then no one heard me. My voice dissipated into the void. So <laughs> now I'm feeling very Holden-ish. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, let's talk about the character. And then I'll turn to you, Tim, first. So I'll let you have the first crack at this. And, and then we'll let Heidi uh, take down your response. Do <laughs> Sounds like me. As is our... Uh, as is our want on the show. Do you think that Holden, Holden Caulfield as a character is, is cynical? I don't think he's a thoroughgoing cynic. I think that he, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, That's I think the name he of really, your memoir, the thoroughgoing cynic. <laughs> I think he really cares a lot. This is part of like, it's like, um, a duality. There's like his cynicism and his idealism work against each other. And I think that he's kind of like really built up this, cynical skin against the world that everybody's a phony and so so it's a facade it's a cynical facade well no i i I don't know that it's a facade because a facade when i hear facade i think something that's not real it's something that you can just kind of push through with your fingers i think it's real i just don't think that it's like it's totally consumed him i think that he has this thing that he's trying to protect especially we see it glimpses of it at the very end of the book and in the most famous section of the book where the book gets its title. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think his cynicism and his idealism kind of work against each other. Well, so I was thinking a lot about your, your comments, your Tim verb, which I don't even know if you came up with it. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you heard it somewhere and you then I inappropriately gave you Is credit for it. Is he going to get another poster? Because I don't have a poster. <laughs> I'm getting another poster, Heidi. I've already been in communication with Graham about it. He's like... <laughs> Hashtag hey. Tim Verb. Yeah. We'll figure out something for you, Heidi. I need we'll to fi- get it together. <laughs> we'll figure something out. Um, well, maybe you just need to say smart things. Um, maybe <laughs> so. <laughs> or maybe you just need to draw attention to them more. I don't know. Um, so... I was thinking about that specific Tim verb that you threw out there, that, that every cynic is a heartbroken or a brokenhearted idealist. So at the end of the book, is that, I mean, is, is that how you read this, that he is a brokenhearted idealist and on, is on his way to cynicism? Is that how you read the ending of this book? I think that he's, he's fighting against it. Oh gosh, is he on his way to cynicism? I think he definitely does not want to be the big question for me is whether or not his sort of habits of mind are going to make him a cynic, even though he doesn't want to be, you know what I mean? Like he, I mean, you can hear if his, if his habits of speech are kind of the habits of his inner being, then I think he's kind of drifting toward becoming a cynic. And he would like, if he was my guy, I'd say, you got to be careful. You got to be really, really careful. Because mm-hmm. like you're drifting toward the thing that you probably least want to be in this world. Um, mm. Yeah, a phony. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe- that's you know what? That's, maybe that's not. That's I, I should I should take that back. I don't know that it, being a phony is the is the thing that he least wants to be in the world. And I think he's so guarded against that that he could kind of tip over into the other side, which is he doesn't care about anything there's nothing to be phony about because he doesn't care about anything he's just thoroughgoing thoroughgoing cynic Hmm. so heidi i was being cruel when i said maybe you should say 
uh, more smart things. I think you know I'm, that I was joking. I'm weeping um, with sadness <laughs> over here. Um, do you view Holden as being a cynic when the book begins? And then do you view him as having changed one way or the other? So I guess what I'm saying is, is his perspective, is his, the degree to which he is cynical increasing or decreasing over the course of his, you know, 36 hour adventure. Right. It's, I, I think there is a change between Holden at the beginning and Holden at the end. I think it is a redemptive change, but not a fully redemptive change. Like Uh, there's potential redemption. Yes. I think it's a trajectory of, uh, yeah, the opportunity for redemption, the, the openness to it through Phoebe. Mm. Um, I, I do not think that he's a cynic, but I think that his heart is more and more deeply breaking throughout the novel. And, and so there he's at the end of the novel, instead of there being a resolution, there's a crossroads. And I think that's what is so frustrating Mm -hmm. to some people about this novel at -hmm. the end of the book, in many ways, it's the beginning of a new story. And, and, and so we don't get to see which road he takes and it's either going to be cynicism or redemption. I believe that. I think there's a change there. I don't think he's just, I do not believe the book just cuts off in the middle of something, but Mm. I do think it ends at the crossroads and Mm. he's got to choose a path and we don't know which path he chooses. Mm. You know, it's so interesting that you say that because in my Flannery O'Connor class that I'm, that I'm doing for this week, just yesterday, we talked about Flannery O'Connor's story, the, um, the life you save may be your own. Do you guys remember that one? Yeah. Uh huh. So it's, it's the story where Tom Shiflett shows up at Lucy Nell Crater's house and he's kind of representative of this sort of, you know, he, he believes that there's a, that there is a duality between the spiritual world and the physical world. And he's on the run, you know, he, that he is after a car and uh, you know, his whole thing is he's on this journey. And what this, one of the things that the story represents is the story is the crossroads. And right. at the end of the story, he has driven off. He's trying to outrun this storm, which sort of is a representative of the, of purification of purgation. And he's trying to outrun the storm into the mobile. And he's left this, he's left um, this girl behind at the coffee shop or the restaurant or whatever. And I was thinking a lot about how it feels very similar to this story where, where Holden Caulfield in a lot of ways is on this, he's longing for something transcendent, right? Yes. And like many young people of his age, he's trying to figure out how to um, fulfill that longing, but also like, where do you, where do you actually look? Like, how do you identify what is transcendent and what isn't? And to me, that's one of the things that's kind of meaningful about the whole duck thing because it's it's as if it's 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 as if he is trying to identify what parts of the universe are going to offer like transcendent meaning and is there you know like is there this difference between the spiritual and the material um right that's great um, david and, and so I was thinking I about how right. he is kind of and so as if this book ends at the end of at ends at the um crossroads then you know, it, it's, I was thinking a lot about, should he, I wonder if he should go to Colorado, you know, like, would it be right for him to go off and, and continue that journey? Or would that be leading him in the wrong direction? Is the book suggesting that the healthy thing is for him to, to do what he did and stay 
with um, Phoebe and like kind of take care of her when he, when she needed him or would he have been healthier actually going off and having this adventure and continuing his search? I think that's one of the big questions that the book asks. I don't mean like, how are we going to judge Holden for the decision that he made, but what is the book actually saying is the healthier decision for him? Yeah. Um, I never even thought about like, this is a good question. Okay. So a, it's always a good idea to come to Colorado. Um, (laughs) um, Go West young man. Right. Yes. And come to Heidi's house. I'll make you dinner. Um, Holden that, probably could have used that. Probably. <laughs> would love to make Holden Caulfield dinner. But I never thought about it being a potentially good idea for him to go. And that does open up a different set of interpretive questions, even though it's kind of a... that. Even though it's a bit of a throwaway paragraph, I felt like... like I. But it, like, it's not a main, he doesn't come back to it and revisit this thing as some kind of big decision. He kind his, of just, his idea of going to Colorado yes, thinks yeah. about it in passing. Um, and, and then it's not really revisited in those words, but, but Phoebe if, believes him. Right. Well, she thinks he's going to go run away. And I've never thought about that being a potentially good idea before. So that's interesting. Do you guys think that his, proposal to go to Colorado is in any way different than remember when he kind of like proposes to the girl that they run off together and he gets a job and right. he yes. likes to get married. Do you think that going to Colorado is any different than the, the other kind of harebrained schemes that he comes up with at various points in the book? Right. Well, oh. and I think that's so important because this is why Holden is not yet a cynic. <laughs> is that he is, as David, as you point out, he's always looking for some kind of escape. He has not yet wrestled with the fact that wherever that he goes, there he is, right? There's, he's looking he, for a reset. He is. He's looking to to escape. And, 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 and when people figure out they cannot escape their own darkness, that's when they have to decide, am I going to become a cynic and just live in the darkness? Or am I going to try to fight for something better? And, and, and so he does, it doesn't seem to occur to him ever that he's trying to escape and that he will be there when he gets to Colorado. Just mm-hmm. him poor with he'll no be, money. He'll be going with yeah. himself. Yes. Like he's still going to be the same tormented person. And that's why he's not yet a cynic, but that's the, the, that that's what's breaking his heart well but he really you know the the very fact that he asks uh what's her name to go with him yeah sally is sally Mm -hmm. is um is is proof that he he recognizes that to go off by himself would be uh less than ideal like he he knows he he needs someone to go with him to keep him company to to not kind of let him fall into despair um to, to give him a companion for the road even. Um, so he, like he recognizes that sort of human need. And I think that's one of the things that he recognizes about everybody. Like he's constantly seeing people who have nobody to, um, to beak their companion on the road. Right. And then, and then when he, and then he, what makes him a cynic is that he sees people who ostensibly are going to be someone's companion for the road, but then fail them. Mm. Mm. Right. Whether it's, um, I mean, he, he has the experience with Antolini or the, you know, all, any of the other, like the, the, it's the difficulty of human connection is what he's, is what right. he's learning about. 
Right. Exactly. And he needs, he wants, he wants his own catcher. He wants to be the catcher in the riot. And he also wants someone to catch him. I, I mean, he is spiraling and he so wants someone to stop him, which is why I think the Antolini episode is so profoundly, uh, why that's a breaking point for him. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because because he really trusted Antolini, Heidi, and yeah, it's really weird episode where he trusts him. He like he he stays on his couch, and then there's this strange episode, and it kind of is. It proves that even this this teacher that he trusted might be part of the dark side. Right. Yeah, I think so. I guess we should talk about that scene. That's the one of the big scenes that hovers over the final third of the final act of the book, if you will. Mm-hmm. There were some questions online about whether that was um, like Holden calls him what per- perverty, pervy, something like that. Pervy, yeah. And uh, and then there were questions of whether that's true or whether that is um, just Holden's, you know, unreliable narrator perspective. And um, we texted a little bit about that. So I got curious to see what the general consensus is among critics on this. Hmm. I think the general consensus among, I'll just put it this way, the two of you is that it was very real and not just his imagination, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The fair way of putting it. So interestingly, that is not the general consensus among the critical world. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally speaking, most people that I saw, I would say three out of four people that were writing about it that I saw in my, you know, small anecdotal <laughs> amount of research just on Google searching, say that that is that 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 Holden has not proven himself to be reliable, and so there is gray area there. That if it happened the way he described it, yes, it's obviously at best problematic, but that we shouldn't necessarily. Uh, trust that he is remembering it the right way or experiencing it the right way. Um, there's a lot of um, uh, uh, literary psychology on this that is written about the scene and about, about the way trauma comes back in the memory and things like that and whether Salinger was getting it right and whether he was trying to experiment with that. So I don't know enough about that to comment on it. Heidi, you'd have to go read all that and then let us know if it seems accurate. Uh, but, but I thought that that was interesting. And so what I wanted to ask is... You know, there were certainly some readers on the po- on the on the Facebook group, listeners of this podcast, who who wondered that. Uh, but you guys were f- definitely feeling like it was, you know, definitely uh, on the that it that, that it happened. And then, but then I was googling this, like I said, and so I, what I wanted to know is not necessarily what is the answer to this question, but why is this question there in this scene? Right. Yes. Let's start there because that's what I want to like. That's the thing about this book is there's so many times when there are these moments, these scenes that generate questions that have these answers that are on the polar seem to be on the polar opposite ends of, you know, that particular spectrum. And that's one of the things that makes the book both great and a little bit disorienting. Mm-hmm. So Heidi, why did you think that question is there? I mean, is it just that we want Antolini to to be a good guy? Is that and so then there's gray area there. We we look for the gray area. Um. Well, I think the question of the reliability of Holden is really held in this scene. Like it said, it's a microcosm of the larger question of the book. And um, mm-hmm. so if you take Holden at face value. Mm-hmm. 
there's, I think, almost no good way to interpret Antolini, even if he wasn't trying to initiate an inappropriate physical relationship with Holden that night. That, mm-hmm. like, there is, there in, in no sphere <laughs> of acceptable human contact is that okay to do <laughs> um, right. if Holden's telling the truth. Um, right. And based on the relationship between them. If Angelini was his father, that's of course appropriate, perfectly fine, like probably really good and holy, right? So, but he's not, he's his teacher. So that's not okay. Um, But the question of, I think one thing about the catcher and the rye is that it's such a, there's so much controversy woven through it. There's so many triggering elements to it from the language to the structure, to the voice, to the actual events that are happening that it becomes then a mirror into the reader. So I think one of the reasons that scene is so disturbing and also brilliant is because when we read it as readers, we bring our own set of preconceptions, our own judgments, uh, our, our own traumas, uh, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and social values and all those kinds of things. We are reading that scene through and it's so triggering and it's, and it demands a response. So we can't help almost an immediate reaction to it. And it's very hard, I think, to change your reaction to this scene once you have it. Hmm. Um, hmm. Which I, like I've seen, I remember in my class, there was like people in, in my high school class, when we discussed this, I do remember this scene very vividly being discussed amongst the students in the class. And I remember even the teacher getting like angry at students for their interpretation of this scene. Oh, wow. So I think that it is a very, it, it provokes a strong reaction. And I think it takes a lot of kind of sifting through our own stuff in order to see it from a different perspective. Does that make sense? Like setting yeah. aside things about yeah. that are inside Like if of someone us. says, I think Holden's lying here because, and usually the reason is going to be because in high school, this thing happened to my friend or me or mm-hmm. whatever. And mm-hmm. so that's why I'm reading it this way. Right. And so to kind of, to be challenged on that, I think with this particular scene is like, it, it, it takes a, kind of a displacement on the part of a reader, like the reader to be able to step back and say, how can I see this scene differently? Is um, How can I respond with compassion to other readers or to Holden or to Intellini or whatever it is? Um, so that's, yeah, I don't know. What do you think about that, Tim? I, I want to ask, I want to kind of back up and ask the question about Holden's reliability. And I'll just say what I think why Holden, where Holden is reliable and unreliable. I, I have always trusted his kind of reporting of the things that have happened and have been very skeptical of, not always, but often skeptical about his interpretation of what those things mean. Like he's sitting in the bar, there's the couple talking adjacent to him and the guy recounts the entire football game to his date. Okay. Is, did he really recount 
every single right. aspect of the game. I don't think so. Right. But I do trust that the guy was talking about the football game. Mm-hmm. So, and I could give like various other examples about where Holden is sort of like. We talked about this last week. He speaks in a very inexact way. Like he uses yeah, a lot of hyperbole yeah. and understatement even. But even like, but when we get quotes, especially when we get quotes from like the taxi drivers, like I don't think even though those are kind of being reported to us through Holden, I still believe that those conversations actually happened. So now we're with Mr. Is it Antolini? Mm-hmm. And Holden reports that he woke up and Mr. Antolini is sitting next to the couch and he's touching his head. I'm like, well, yeah, that happened. Now the question is whether or not, like, I mean, and he immediately does Holden says it was so pervy. That to me is the thing that I believe Holden but if there's any gray area based on like the past pattern, that's where the gray area would be. Like, I mean, I think Heidi is completely right. I think anytime you, in this situation, it's completely inappropriate. There's just nothing that can be said that like, oh no, that's fine. It's no big So is it a matter of the degree of the inappropriateness that you have to? Well, or like to stick to Holden's reliability, it's whether or not, I don't know how to say it. Um, is Holden overreacting like i kind of think no i kind of think he's not right well and not only the touching while the young minor in your house is sleeping it's there's also the fact that mr antolini got like roaring drunk right right, in front of right, him. right 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 so there's there's levels of the abuse of that relationship that in in an opportunity in which Mr. Antolini could have been the catcher in the rye to Holden. And I think that is where the attention can be on this scene in order to interpret it within the wider context of the book. Like this young man went to Mr. Antolini because he had nowhere else to go. And Mr. Antolini got drunk and touched him while he was sleeping. Whether or not he was trying to initiate a sexual relationship to me is almost beside the point Mm. because of how very disillusioning and inappropriate this is going to be to this child. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it in, in my brief research on the, the subject in terms of what other people were writing, um, there is the question of, you know, um, what one of the big the big themes in the this book is what in the states that people put themselves in to survive, and whether those states are really themselves. So we get a lot of right. one of the things that you have to decide in in this particular scene that I was troubled by is. He's giving him all this advice, some mm-hmm. of which is at least decent advice, right? It's at least worth thinking about. Right. And um, you can tell that he seems to care about him and like wants the best for him, right? It seems that way. Agreed. So you've got that, but then do we have to disregard all of his advice and all the wise or semi-wise things that he says based on this one moment? Like, I think that's one of the big themes of the whole book 
Huh. Um, and in part, and you know, and 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 is the choice that Angelini makes there because he's a bad guy who would do that kind of thing, or because to survive he drinks a lot and then lead, and that leads him to make a bad decision. And it seems like the book and Holden are constantly trying to navigate what happens to people when they do things to survive the life they're having to live. Um, and, and how do you, how do you then interpret the choices that people make in terms of the kind of person they actually are? So his mother, I think that one of the things that's under the surface of this book, I'm not drawing conclusions here. I'm just kind of asking mm-hmm. questions, I guess his right. mother's response to him and his siblings after the death of his brother, mm. to me is one of the profound things that's under the surface. Mm-hmm. Because even when Phoebe says, when's he coming home? She's like, oh, I don't know. He, in theory, he's supposed to come home on Wednesday. And she like barely, she kind of brushes it off. And, you know, she, you can tell that she's just trying to find ways to cope. And, um, and she's not, she doesn't have the capacity to enjoy life. You know, he talks about how she went out to the show and um, he, Holden felt like she was not telling the truth about how she actually felt about the, the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's recognizing that life is difficult and that we all, that there's all these traumas and that everybody's doing all these different things to try to survive. And very few people are going to be the kind of person who go over and pick up the kid who's just thrown himself out the window. And that's what he, that was the thing that struck him about Antolini that made him think he was a good guy. Mm-hmm. But then even Antolini starts drinking to the point right. of doing stupid things. And so then he has to decide, Holden has to decide, is this because he's a bad guy or because he, to survive, he's been drinking so much that it leads him to make bad decisions. And, and that's the thing that, that, the, that is constantly in this book and that everybody has to figure out. I think that's one of the things that like, that's the hardest thing about knowing people, right? Yeah. <laughs> that we yeah, all are trying to survive and it leads us to make bad decisions. Yes. And there's a way that you can read Antolini if you're going to read him sympathetically. Right, that's, is, yeah. I'm not, by the oh, way, I just w- want to say... I'm not saying that what he did was okay. There's a reason this book doesn't have him do more, by the way. Yes. Yeah. It, it right. needs to be in the gray area. Yeah. Yeah. There needs to be some question of, of it for the, for the idea, for the concepts to be at what Salinger's trying to make it, make them be. Sorry, go ahead. I, I think if you read Antolini sympathetically, the sympathetic reading goes like this. He was a great teacher. He really cared for Holden there's this event where this boy dies. Mr. Antolini is such a soft-hearted person that he's the only one that will do anything with the boy's body. He's the one who picks up the boy. Okay, and now I think the sympathetic reading is something broke in Mr. Antolini when that happened. You know, like, it's not every day that a young man commits suicide, that you are there that you are the one who carries his body. And so something broke in Mr. Antolini. And now here's another young man in his charge who's like asked for his help, who's sleeping on his couch. And Mr. Antolini has sympathy, like great sympathy. And maybe he feels like Holden does. Like he wants to protect people from like rushing off the cliff. (laughs) You know, like I, I can imagine that. And I think like what we're all saying is sort of like, but it comes back to this sort of fundamental the action is this sort of irreducible thing that we kind of can't get away with. It's really hard to read sympathetically that he's like, you know, petting Holden's hair while he's sitting on the couch. Now, is it possible that that is motivated by nothing but sort of like 
kindness and sadness over the broken state of the world? Yeah, I can imagine that. Boy, it's sketchy though. But I, I told Heidi, yeah, yeah. go ahead, go ahead, David. Yeah, I mean, the, the, what, I, what, what I seem to be running into the most when I was looking this up was the idea that he overstepped, but that there's no evidence in the book other than in Holden's own fear right. that he's being predatory. Yeah. Um, right. So, so yes, he over, cause as you said, Tim, what actually happens is what well, is the thing that we can usually rely on. It seems like, so yes, he probably was touching his head in his drunken state, but that other than in Holden's own fear, the book does not dis- suggest that he was trying to do anything more than that in a predatory right. sort of way. Right. That's, uh-huh. that's the, I would say it suggests it, but it doesn't confirm it. Right. It doesn't give us irrefutable evidence right one way or the other other than like you said holden's very strong reaction and his claim that that's happened to him 20 times before um right. yeah which we don't have to believe the number 20 but i do agree with tim that we have to at least consider that that holden in exaggerating there's still an element of truth in this that multiple times he has been that some that that Something has happened. Boy, yeah, something has happened that's inappropriate and that is triggering to him. And that that's, that's again, all of a piece with the idea of who is going to catch all of humanity running off a cliff in isolation. Yeah, it goes back to the, um, to the life you save may be your own because Tom Shiflett in that story keeps saying, the world is broken. The world is not whole. I came to the country to see the world whole. And he's trying to find... Like he has this recognition that the world is broken, that the world is not what it once was, is the way he's kind of putting it. And he's searching for a world to be whole. And Holden is doing the same thing. And I don't, I, I've often wondered if his name being Holden is like, there's a lot of different plays on words with that name. Um, like whether it's whole as in not broken, and also the idea of like when you catch someone, you hold them. I, I've never, those might be over, you know, overreaching. <laughs> um, but it seems like he that that's what Holden is after is he's after some kind of something that's actually complete, you know, whether it's a relationship or or whether it's a, a place that's safe or whatever. And everything is always a little bit, you know, just when he thinks he's going to be safe with Antolini, he realizes maybe he's not. And so just, you know, every time it feels like something's going to be whole and complete, an edge gets shaved off, so to speak. Mm. That he never, there's never a full circle, you know, and I don't mean like the story comes full circle, but there's never a, um, like there's a wedge cut into it, you know, just when he thinks it's going to be, um, a complete shape. There's, and there's something that can be, maybe this is what you're saying. Something can be doubted. Something's not clear. Yeah. There's always some, there's always a reason not to trust someone. Yeah. Right. Well, and Holden will find it to your point and to the point of the critics who are looking critically, um, in in the academic sense at this scene that's you said earlier david something really important which is that that is one of the wider contemplations of this book which is holden will find a reason not to trust people and that's like happens over and over again some of it very much deserved and some of it all in his head Mm -hmm. or some of it out of fear um and mm-hmm. trauma and 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 so sorting those threads out is part of the experience of reading and interpreting this novel. Mm. Yeah, it's not you know, like it's not like he shouldn't be doubt have doubt, you know? Like mm-hmm. 
it's not it's not wrong for him to not not trust people given what he's been through. It's not surprising. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Go go ahead, Tim. Sorry. I was going to say that um, the Harvey Weinstein conviction was this week. Yeah. And yeah. one of the things that I was reading about Harvey Weinstein was that the so to back up his defense team made a really big deal. So Harvey Weinstein, big Hollywood producer, and he's had these rumors, like tons of rumors um, that he had abused his position by having like unwanted sexual contact and relationship with women who were trying to move, you know, who were trying to establish a career in Hollywood. And he, his defense team used as evidence that the two women who were accusing him, two of the many women they were accusing him, but the two that actually went to court, um, had relationships with him after the unwanted contact with Harvey Weinstein. And they were using that as sort of like, look, this is evidence that the relationship was, you know, like healthy. These women were interested in Harvey. It wasn't, you know... And or or, the, or even that they knew what they were doing was kind or they of knew what they were the doing phrasing, right. right it was their choice and some of the kind of interpretation coming out of his conviction is that juries have gotten a lot more sophisticated and knowledgeable about what those kind of relationships like actually look like it's never just as clean as. Um, the, the, uh, abuser does something wrong. Um, the victim, you know, points the finger and, you know, shouts from the rooftops, Harvey Weinstein is a predator. It's never, it's always complicated because it's this like very intimate occurrence. And I, I think part of what I, I don't know how to say this. I kind of think that Salinger, even before people were really savvy about like these sorts of um, abuser victim sorts of relationships, I kind of have this sense that Salinger probably either knew someone. I think Salinger was savvy. That's the short way of saying it. I think that he kind of knew what he was talking about. If we're going to put the, if we're going to say that Mr. Antolini was indeed a pervert, then I think that Salinger was probably more sophisticated than his audiences were, or he knew more than his audience like typically knew when he wrote that scene. Mm. Does that make sense? I feel yes. like I really butchered that. No, I, yeah, no, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense that now there's much more deeply entrenched cultural understanding, wider, like pop cultural understanding of the idea of consent and the, and right, 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 right. And power, the difference between a man with, or a person with power and, and a weaker person who feels like they can't say no. And that's not the same thing as consent. And so that, that is going to be that, that's part of a wider cultural understanding than Salinger's generation had. Right. Right. And I think the power issue is especially the thing that like we have gotten more attuned to. And so 
I think maybe in 1960, I mean, I'm gonna make this sort of um, black and white just for the sake of argument. I think maybe in 1960, it would be easy to read this episode as something like, um, oh, it's just a teacher and a student who have had a friendly relationship uh, in the past. And that's all it is. It's just a teacher-student relationship that was particularly warm. But now I think we read it and we're like, well, no, it's more than just that. It's an older male who, with power, and it's a younger male who's kind of like in a particularly prone position. And mm. that right there is um, a, a key aspect of what is going on in this relationship. That's not something that's it's outside the, the room. That's mm-hmm. what's inside the room. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's the book, right? I asked, should, should he, I mean, how do we, I want to talk about this actually. How do we then respond to the advice that Antolini gives? Because that's then what Holden is going to have to ask himself, right? He's mm-hmm. going to, he's going to have this advice that maybe it was good advice that, that could have helped him. And we could debate the, the mm-hmm. merits exactly of the advice, right. but it's meant it's the book presents it as good advice. Right. And Holden takes it that way, but then this happens. And so for the rest of his life, he's going to doubt the nature of that advice. And so, and then it's the same thing we have to do as readers. Like we have to, we have to figure out which is, you know, when, what do you do with people who you're not, with the things that people say that seems right, but you're not sure if you trust people. It's like, it's the, the, the definition of not knowing what makes you trust someone, you know, or, or, or why you should trust someone. I mean, he doesn't know how to trust people. He doesn't know why he should or who, or who to trust. it's a totally different relationship, but um, Polonius's advice to his son in Hamlet is great advice. And then you think about who Polonius was, and he's just, he's number one, a fool. Number two, a toady to a king that has killed his brother and married his brother's wife. You know what I mean? And I think that Polonius probably has a suspicion that's going on. So how then do you read Polonius's advice to his son, which is really smart? Give no man. Oh, I mean, like we could like, I can go through it. Um, it's sound advice, but is that advice dulled, muted, um, obsolete because of who Polonius is? I actually don't think it is. It's harder to hear it from him, but I don't think that because he is who he is, it makes his advice bad. And likewise with Mr. Antolini. If if Mr. Antolini is indeed, as Holden thinks, a pervert, does that mean that his advice is bad? No, I don't think so. Well, so to me, I, the more I think about it, the more I think it doesn't really matter if it's good advice or bad advice, because what it does is the point is that the dissonance that it creates, like the chaos yeah, that right, it creates right. for Holden's soul. Like right. the, the scene is presented in this very uh, traditional way where, you know, he comes, you know, he, he, he could be like out of Dickens or something. He comes to this person who is, it's like, it's like Mr. Chips or something. He comes to this teacher who is um, wise and who he trusts and the guy gives him great advice. And then the scene ends, you know, the whole thing's turned upside down. And so because it's turned upside down, it, it introduces this dissonance or this even more dissonance into the story, but also into his soul. And so it doesn't matter if the advice is good because, because his, his soul and his mind, his heart, everything has been flipped upside down 
by how he perceived what happened. Um, and you know, it's just one more link in the chain of, of, uh, this journey that he's on, so to speak, which I mixed my metaphors very poorly there, but <laughs> it's just one more, one more reason for him to edge toward despair. Right. Yeah. And I think you're exactly right, David. I think that's the, that's the reason that this episode is so crucial in the novel. It's not, um, is Holden going to take his advice or not? That's not the question. The question is sort of like, or the object is the dissonance that you are talking about. This, again, something that we wanted to kind of believe in has been shown to be sketchy. It shows, like, cynicism is the safe position because, again, we've been shown that we can't believe in the things that we believe in. Yeah. I, I'm not the saying people, that the people are going to betray us. People are going to betray us. That's the thing that Holden is wrestling with. And I'm not sure, and I'm not sure that that's what the book is arguing, but that's the central like dramatic dilemma of the book. Right. Well, there's a well, reason that Phoebe plays is going to play Benedict Arnold. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Go ahead, Heidi. Okay. So here's the thing though. And this is, this goes back to another question that we have kind of, tangentially addressed, which is, is this a book for adolescents? Because part of transitioning from child to adolescence is the very, very, very painful experience of wrestling with that dissonance, no matter what level of trauma or disillusionment or whatever that we've experienced in our lives. And there's a varying degree to which adolescent brains can accept that level of dissonance. So, and and that is part of what it means to grow up and to become an adult, which is, okay, so if my parents or the adults in my life, the teachers, whatever, have hurt me, does that mean, or betrayed me or, or are hypocrites or whatever, does that mean then that we, I can just discount everything they have told me? Mm-hmm. It's the same reason why all of these, you know, we have all these questions right now in, 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 in the wider kind of Christian culture in America. Why are all the kids leaving the faith when they go to college? Mm. A lot of it is because of this, because it's very hard for adolescents to accept that dissonance. So they want to give up. Mm. And so, and they say, okay, because Mr. Angelini did this inappropriate thing that triggered whatever past trauma or interpret it correctly or incorrectly, whatever, does that mean then whatever wisdom he has to offer is just hypocrisy and nothing. And Holden seems to be saying yes, but that's actually normal for a 17 year old. Mm. And I think that that's part of the tragedy of this book is that who is going to actually be a true catcher in the rye? Who is going to stand there with integrity and keep people from falling off the ledge? And so I give no opportunity for this transitioning, this child who's transitioning from child to adult Mm -hmm. to discount your words. And Hilda never encounters that in the entire novel. And he is, I think he is wrong to discount everything that they all say. I do think that that's true, but his capacity to accept the truth and discount the hypocrisy is developing. That's part of what it means to be an adolescent. And so I think that's why the story ends on the cliffhanger. 
It's like mm. now that he's becoming a young, like an actual man, now that he's 17, almost 18, whatever, like, is it, is it then that he can become mature and say, mm. this teacher who was sick and looked weird with his robe open in the beginning? And, and so because of that, he discounted what he had to say, right? That's obviously ridiculous, but that's how kids think. And that's why I do think this is a book for adults. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, I mean, frankly, it's kind of how all people think. It's just, it's just a matter of degree, I guess. Right. Like we're all swayed by, uh, strange things. Right. <laughs> Some people just have the wisdom to, or the experience to sort of uh, understand their own responses. Right. And to say, yeah, Mr. Antolini said some pretty, you know, good stuff. And so maybe I should have, maybe I should listen to it. But I mean, that's just, that's, it's also just very human for him to have run off in that situation. And so anyway, it kind of goes back to the hunter, the predator and the prey thing. Mm -hmm. right? It's everything yep. becomes a reversal. Everything becomes a paradox. Everything kind of spirals so that Holden doesn't have anything to hold on to. Mm. And he contributes to that just as much as his external circumstances do. Mm. You know, one of the books that we read later on this year is The Moviegoer by Walker Percy. Mm -hmm. And there's a pattern in Walker Percy's novels that they end with a question. It's almost like the whole book. Spoiler alert. Is a clear. Well, I'm not, to be honest, I don't remember if that's the case about the movie goer. It may not be the case. I just yeah, can't it remember. Is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's something about the person that's asking the question at the end of the book that you trust their sort of abilities to make you don't know which way they're going to choose, but you trust that their compass is, um, it's calibrated in a way that Holden's compass is not, is not yet calibrated. And that's what's scary about this book for me, mm -hmm. Catcher in the Rye, is that I do feel, I think you're exactly right, both of you, in saying like there's kind of like, there's a question posed at the end of the book, and which way is Holden going to choose? And I do, I do not know. And what's a little bit scarier is that I definitely don't trust Holden's um, ability to construct a kind of like accurate, a, a, a compass that can, tr that can point true north. He's still in the process mm -hmm. of trying to discover what that... That's uh, why he's going west. Yeah. Right. But right, like he doesn't, he doesn't know which way is true north. Whereas it seems like these other characters, like in in Walker Percy's books, they're they understand the stakes with a sort of clarity that I don't think that Holden has. I, I think that I'm really glad that we were able to talk about whether this book is for you know high school kids, adolescents, or whether it's for adults. And how do you say that it's for adults? And one of the things that I think that kind of gets misunderstood about this book is I don't really think this is a book for like, I don't think we should read this book thinking or worrying about, Oh, my kid or my student or myself is going to become Holden Caulfield. Right. I think Agreed. the reality is that we are surrounded by Holden Caulfields. And the question is, are we, all of us going to be 
there? Are we going to be Benedict Arnold to the Holden Caulfields around us? Are we going to be the people who let people down, who, who, you know, beat them up in a hotel room, you know, like there's all these different, you could choose any of these characters to let him down and betray him. Or are we going to be the, the catcher. someone like Phoebe, the catcher? Yeah. Right. It's not a, it's not a question of, am I going to become Holden? It's the question of, am I going to become one of the other people who lets him down? That That's to me right. is the profound question of this book. I totally agree with that. Especially Absolutely. as a parent and a teacher. Yeah. yeah. Because we have no capacity to like orient Holden. I mean, you, we, he's got to do that. It's his work. Mm-hmm. And you're either going to be authentic or you're going to be a phony. And he's going to deal with that the way that he deals with that. But you can't, you can't make those sorts of decisions for him. You can only be on the right side of the wrong side. Mm. Right. Right. Mm. I, I totally agree. And I, I think that this book is so anxiety provoking for mothers and, and I, and partly because of the anxiety of what will hold and choose and you just want to see him saved or you just really don't like him. Um, and then partly because it's just kind of gross. Like, and, and so, and the language is bad. And I think people who are, you know, very triggered by this book, like, or if they just don't like it, then don't read it because it doesn't end in a way that's going to make you feel better. So, but I do think in reading this book, looking, I found, I just personally, like I remember those razor's edge moments in my life. I remember Mm. those cliffhangers when I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to choose. Like, I don't know. This world is a really hard place to be. And I don't know if I'm going to stay Holden here, if I'm going to keep going down this path of, of disillusionment or whether I'm going to choose to find hope and to look for... And, and so I think that the end of this book, if you've been holding on for Holden to just get better, is hard. And so I do think we should probably talk about that a little bit. And yeah, I mean, so you mentioned that you think that there is a uh, redemptive yeah, ending, a I think was the word trajectory. Hopeful. Yeah. So let's talk about that because I think that's, you know, that's one of the, obviously, as you're saying, that's one of the big things that people have trouble with when they get to the end of this book because you feel a little bit like, on the one hand, it feels abrupt <laughs> and it feels like it's at, the, it's at a crossroads and there's more questions than answers and all those things. So, and it it almost feels like the plot wasn't resolved, so yeah. to, so to speak. So then, where where do, how do you see that that hopefulness that 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 the, the sense of redemption showing up? So as I was reading the end, I said in the first episode that I had no memory of the end of this novel, and so I was really curious as I got to the end whether I was going to be like, oh yeah, and I didn't at all. I just <laughs> read it to the end and was like, oh, now it's over. It's over, and yeah, and. And, you know, the first book that it reminded me of is the Iliad, um, because that's kind of how the Iliad is. Like, you have to, it just kind of ends. And, but the there battle is, rages on. Yes. And then it's just, like, over. And, um, and, and you know, and that's how it ends for Hector, Breaker of Horses. And you're like, that's the end? Like, that's the end of this, this epic? But there is... In the Iliad and in Catcher in the Ride, there is a very important, very important uh, full circle moment. And I 
but it's very much glossed over. And I think that's consistent with Catcher in the Rye. When he, if he has that little paragraph when he just says, and I did stay. That's how it begins, right? Where's mm-hmm. that little where's that little paragraph? Um that's all I'm gonna tell you. Yeah, that's no, the that's that's the epilogue. Yeah. But um and that's why I found what you said earlier today. So interesting, David, when you said, well, do you think he should have gone to Colorado? Um, I'd never even considered that before. I'd always read it as that would just be a continuation of his downward trajectory. Uh, And he is with Phoebe. There's somebody that he actually loves and Mm -hmm. and somebody who I I think she catches him as he's going over the edge. I think she does. Mm. And it makes him stay with her. I, I think that the moment where he's sitting in the rain is very, you know, he's watching her on the carousel and he's sitting in the rain and everyone else has left and he's getting soaked. He, he's got the hat on, which is keeping his head dry, but the rest of him is getting soaked. And there's something very cinematic about that, right? Like, yes. Um, on the one hand, you think, well, it sounds depressing. But on the other hand, I wonder if there's a sort of uh, purification, a sort of purgation in the image. Um, so, you know, I, uh, I, I don't, I, what I love about it is that it doesn't, we, we don't go off at the end of this book knowing exactly how he turns out. But what we do know at the end of the book is that he hasn't abandoned after everything he's been through after, you know, he's, he's retelling the story in some kind of facility, I guess. Um, after all that, his ability to, see the value in other people has not been completely washed away. Right. Like he says, about all I know is I sort of miss everybody I told about, even old Stradlater and Ackley. I think I even miss that blank Maurice. It's funny. Don't ever tell anybody anything. If you do, you start missing everybody. Um, and like I, I, that capacity to feel affection for people is uh, in theory, it's the thing that's going to carry him on, right? Because it's the thing that keeps him from running away. It's the thing that grounds him and makes him want to stay for Phoebe and then her catch him. I think what happens there is they catch each other. I think right. that's that's why that I think that's a big reason why they, there's this transaction of the hat, the hunting mm-hmm. hat. Like yeah, she puts it on his head and then he wears it, but she, he had given it to her. And I think the trans that that passing that hat back and forth in a way is symbolic of them catching one another. And there's a sort of, I don't want to say transactional, but there's a, it's, there's a sort of, um, a mutual uh, salvation that happens. Yeah. Yes. The symbolic, uh, um, uh, support for one another that is in, is that is in passing that thing, that hat to one, to the other person. Right. Go, go. Well, and Phoebe is, one one of the things that readers often find sad about Phoebe is that it's very clear in this little episode that Holden has idealized her and that she is starting to lose her childlike innocence as well. And, and that makes readers sad, but I don't, I think that there's a different way to interpret that. I think we can see it as a natural process of growing up, which is something the book wrestles with. Phoebe is not going to stay a child and she has been through the same trauma that Holden has in their family mm-hmm. and what will and i and he never even really considers this but it is threaded throughout this last 
interaction between the two of them. What will happen to Phoebe if she loses Holden? And and I yeah. think that is exactly what you're saying. This goes to your point, David, that in staying, he contributes to saving her and she contributes to saving him by keeping him there. And and they have a real moment of connection. They truly connect with each other here. And that's the thing that Holden has wanted the entire book. So I think this moment is super redemptive and that it's easy to miss because it doesn't, it's, it, it's the same thing. This, this goes to my connection with the Iliad. It's the same thing as Achilles kneeling before Priam, or excuse me, as Priam kneeling before Achilles and saying, I am kissing the hands of the man who has killed my son. Please, and, and Achilles finally weeping with redemptive tears, true grief, and agreeing to give back the body of Hector. And in and, and that, that's the true crowning moment of the Iliad. And that's the same here. I think that this moment of exchanging the hunting cap and, and loving somebody more than yourself. And I think this is a clue to all of these books with these very troubled characters is if you can find a moment in which a selfish person actually loves somebody, that is a redemptive moment in a book. And that happens here. Especially in a book that is basically a series of, of scenes where that is, that's the hunt. That's what he's hunting for. That's exactly right. He's hunting for that connection. It's, you know, kind of a Howard's End idea. He's hunting for that connection. That's where he goes to the hotel and, you know, at first second he thinks about, you know, paying for the prostitute and then that realizes, you know, that's not, that's not the same thing, right? Um, that's why there's this sort of uh, overt, he, he's kind of constantly thinking about sex, right? Because mm-hmm. it, because of the concept of, concept of connection, but he also recognizes that that's not the same thing, you know. Right. Um, so, Tim, right. you've been quiet. You're muted, so maybe you haven't been quiet, but we haven't been able to hear you. <laughs> I've been chatting this whole time. I was just <laughs> muted. <laughs> do you want to add? Do you guys, well, is it, is it Heidi? Is it a redemptive moment, or is it like the possibility of some sort of redemption? Because I I'll just I think it's more the latter. Mm-hmm. Go on. But maybe maybe you think there's more. I, I it does seem to me that this he has this connection with Phoebe that we don't see anywhere else in the book. It doesn't occur anywhere else, even between like his first teacher who he cares for and who his first teacher actually cares for him. Not Mr. Antolini, I can't remember his name. Um, they don't connect, they don't meet each other. They're kind of primed to, um, but they miss each other. And then finally, there's this moment where Phoebe and Holden are together. They love each other. And something does seem to warm inside of Holden. But it does seem to me like it just almost puts him on the knife's edge. He's instead of being fully just cynical about the phoniness of this world. Now he's kind of standing on the knife's edge and wondering, okay, maybe, maybe there's something else here. So I don't know that. I mean, maybe I'm like quibbling over um, a word. I I might say that it holds the possibility of redemption, but I don't know that redemption has happened. I do agree with that. Maybe hopeful is more, but it is a really... 
Yeah, I, I agree. Well, there's right. a... Go ahead. Well, in terms of when we talk about storytelling, we talk about concepts like resolution and denouement and all these things. Yeah, yeah. And there, and like, can I read it? Can I read this passage at the end here? There's like, like yeah. half a page here. Because I think that it offers all of the sort of... Uh, all of the um, structural elements that we look for in the climax or in the denouement of, of a book. So at the end of the second to the last chapter, the penultimate chapter on 274 in my edition, there's a paragraph that begins when the ride was over. So she's been riding. She just rode, you know, they went, um, they walked down the road and went to the zoo, I guess. And it's the zoo, right? Or the park. And she's right. She's um, riding the, uh, Carousel. Carousel. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Okay. So when the ride was over, she got off her horse and came over to me. You ride once too this time, she said. No, I'll just watch her. I think I'll just watch. I said. I gave her some more of her dough. Here, get some more tickets. She took the dough off me. I'm not mad at you anymore, she said. I know. Hurry up. The thing's going to start again. Then all of a sudden, she gave me a kiss. Then she held her hand out and said, it's raining. It's starting to rain. I know. Then what she did, it near killed me. She reached in my coat pocket and took out my red hunting hat and put it on my head. Don't you want it? I said, you can wear it a while. Okay. Hurry up though. Now you're going to miss your ride. You won't get your own horse or anything. She kept hanging around though. Did you mean it? What she said, you really aren't going anyway, going anywhere. Are you really going home afterwards? She asked me. Yeah, I said. I meant it too. I wasn't lying to her. I really did go home afterwards. Hurry up now, I said. The thing's starting. She ran and bought her ticket and got back on the carousel just in time. Then she walked all the way around it till she got her own horse back. Then she got on it. She waved to me and I waved back. Boy, it began to rain. <laughs> and then it, and then it uh, talks about the rain there, but there's a couple little things that, as Heidi said, Heidi, you mentioned earlier that they kind of glosses over. Like he says, I really did go home. I wasn't lying to her. Um, but they, you know, there's these little things. She puts the hat on on him. She gives him the kiss. She um, she keeps hanging around even though she might lose her horse. Um, and then he tells he tells the truth. You know, he mm-hmm. tells her what he's going to do, and he means it. You know. It, you know, and that that's not something that has happened in this book. And so the whole book, he's been hunting for this. He's been looking for these connections. Um, and then finally, as you said, they make these connections and they tell each other the truth. And they, you know, so often the things that we do to prove that we really love somebody, that we really care, that we're really going to catch them is the little things, right? It's the things that that add up to a whole. It's not the big dramatic gestures right. that, that have, you know, he's been looking for. It's 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 the little things that add up to create the picture of a, the whole story of a relationship. And here in the end, finally, a couple of little things add together and they have a true connection. And then when they wave to each other, you know, they see each other. I think, I think what's happening there is they're really seeing each other and they're, there's like a commitment, right? There's a, it's, it's almost like a wave hello more than a wave goodbye. And, and, you know, you don't, he maybe, you know, she's going to go through things. He's going to keep going through things, but there's at least the sense of hope that in this stasis, you know, that that connection is going to last, that it's going to be meaningful and it's going to be sustaining. Right. Right. I agree completely. Also remembering that the Holden who writes what we're reading yes, we need to talk is about the this. Holden of after this moment. And so to Tim's point, 
it doesn't solve. There's no neat little bow. (laughs) There's no, and then I became a fine upstanding citizen and I really knew myself and I repented and, and, you know, I went back to church and now I'm an elder, you know, like, it's not that (laughs) it's, this is, I do think this is a healing and a hopeful moment, but it, it brings, and I think it brings him back from the brink, but you can be back from the brink and still choose to go over. Right. And I, and I think that that's where the the novel ends. So. Well, that's where it asks us yeah. how we're going to respond. Exactly. That's <laughs> where it becomes a mirror into our own interpretations again. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Do we want to talk about the sort of, well, Tim, were you going to say something? You just unmuted. Well, I, I just, before we end, I feel like I made a promise to our listeners to talk about the famous murder that was kind of, I don't not inspired, probably justified the uh, murderer attempted to kind of like justify what he did by reading the famous Catcher in the Rye passage. I just think it, we can either today or during the Q&A session, we should probably address that. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. And proceed. <laughs> well, John Lennon was shot by a man named Mark David Chapman in 1980. And the story is that Chapman, as in his defense during the trial, read the Catcher in the Rye passage as a sort of justification for why he did what he did. The, his thinking was... Lennon was selling out. He was kind of becoming a phony. And so Chapman was doing the world a favor. He loved Lennon's music with the Beatles and apparently like his early solo stuff. And he felt that Lennon was kind of going over to the dark side and that's why he killed him. And his justification for doing so was the Catcher in the Rye passage. Which Catcher in the Rye passage? The one where um, Phoebe, or where Holden tells Phoebe what he would be if he could, if he could do anything in the world, what he would do. I mean, I can, I can read that passage. I've got it highlighted. Where he, where he would catch the the children going off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When a body meet a body coming through the rye. Do you guys have? Do you guys know what page that's on? Well, you know. Uh, John Hinckley's assassination attempt on Ronald Le- Reagan was also supposedly um, he he re- he talked about this book as well as did Robert John Bardo who murdered Rebecca Schaefer the actress so those all three oh, of I didn't them know that one. were referenced and, and I heard also I'm sorry I should know why is um, the man who shot JFK what is his name what's wrong with me oh good I'm not the only one wait who some, what, are you, what are you talking about? JFK. The man who, the man who shot oh, JFK. Oh. What are his three names? They all have three names. Have you seen that Mel Gibson movie? Lee Harvey Oswald. Lee Harvey Oswald, yes. Yeah. You're uh, right. The movie's names. conspiracy theory, yeah. Conspiracy theory, yes. Yeah, he's obsessed with the with the book, yeah. Catcher in the Rye and um, the three named assassins are all mentioned in... Lee Harvey Oswald has a, yeah. had a, like a well-marked copy of the book also. So there's yeah. this something... That could be like a whole interesting uh, podcast about. Well, is why? this just a coincidence? Why, does this why is this happening? Yeah, right. The section that um, 
In fact, I'll just read it. It's not terribly long. It begins for me on page 224. It sounds like you and I have the same pagination, David. Um, so he's talking with Phoebe and he says, uh, you know that body, if a body, you know that song, if a body catch a body through the rye, Phoebe. It's if a body meet a body coming through the rye, old Phoebe said, a poem by Robert Burns. I know it's a poem by Robert Burns. She was right though. It is. If a body meet a body coming through the rye. I didn't know it then though. I thought it was if a body catch a body, I said. Anyway, I keep picturing all these little kids playing some game in this big field of rye and all. Thousands of little kids and nobody's around. Nobody big, I mean, except me. And I'm standing on the edge of some crazy cliff. What I have to do, I have to catch everybody if they start to go over the cliff. I mean, if there's running and they don't look where they're going, I have to come out for, from somewhere and catch them. That's all I do all day. I just be the catcher in the rye and all. I know it's crazy. That's the only thing I'd really like to be. I know it's crazy. That's, I think, the section that yeah. Mark David Chapman read is in his defense. Yeah, and he he had a copy of the book, and he wrote, "This is my statement," and then signed signed it, Holden Caulfield, Man. in his copy of the book. Yeah. And apparently, he wanted, uh, like there are theories that he wanted to preserve John Lennon's innocence. Right. I mean, he was obviously right. a deranged guy who didn't understand what was going on in the passage. <laughs> um, and then there's all these other people that supposedly were motivated by this book. I don't. It's one of those things where, like, for example, Hinckley. They went to his apartment and he had like six or seven books and one of them was Catcher in the Rye. So it's kind of like, mm. that doesn't necessarily mean it motivated him to try to assassinate right. Reagan, but you know, so I think once it happened with Lenin, that started, be, it started becoming like a, you know, if they had that book, it became a popular thing to note when someone did something that was terrible and had the book on hand or, you know, uh, so it's strange. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But obviously this book, I mean, it sure uh, creates some pretty wild responses. Right. Yeah. It taps into something mm -hmm. and it, it, it does tap into that very um, troubled, dissonant part of every human soul. And some people are governed by that. And, you know, assassins are probably some of those people. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. I, I mean, does, does that sort of thing, does, does, the, does the fact that it elicits such specific responses, does it make you hesitate? to to say like does it add to the list of reasons why this book should be banned say for either of you tim you brought it up does it does it make you hesitate with this book not that you think you're going to like be motivated to do something with there's something like demonic about the book in and of itself right. but uh yeah yeah what, I mean, what do you think about that no no more than i'd be reluctant to recommend crime and punishment i uh, no, I'm not reluctant to recommend the book. I, I think that 
the men who kind of like find inspiration in this book would have found inspiration in another book. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think there was something going on inside these men, like Mark David Chapman, mm-hmm. that they were just looking for a kind of nail to hang their intentions on. And they found Catching the Rye. And Catching the Rye, because of its popularity, because it's so widely assigned, um, and because it's so powerful, it is such a powerful piece of literature that I think people resonate with it and then use it toward like these destructive ends. But I think they would have found some other means of kind of like justifying what they did if it wasn't catching the rye. It's not catching the rye's fault. It was, ah, yeah. it was what they did. Sure. It was what they decided to do. Sure, sure. All right, Hattie, any, any final thoughts you want to add? Uh, obviously, next week we will answer plenty of questions from people. Uh, but you you have one more chance to say something that you want to say about this book. We didn't cover everything, of course, but. Right. No, I don't think I do. I think I'm, I I do want to answer the question about whether or not I'm hesitant to recommend this book and, or I don't believe in banning books, so I'll never ban it. But <laughs> I, I do think that this is a book to approach with caution Um, I would not hand this book to a very troubled 16 year old. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't, you know, follow them everywhere to make sure they didn't read it or anything. But, you know, to Tim's point, the book didn't make anybody do anything. It's just a book, but it is a, for for someone with a very healthy moral imagination, which is a concept we talk a lot about in classical education, I think that this book can deepen compassion, can help uh, to connect to very troubled people and can expand. And, and I think that's why I keep urging our, our listeners who are struggling with it, like, hang in there, like, let it, let it, why, let it open you up to love troubled, hard people to love. Um, I think that's good thing about this book, but I do not think that Salinger was trying to write some kind of triumphant moral fable like this. He is not writing a book that is, that echoes uh, a redemptive kind of cast way of seeing the world. Although I do think that there's very hopeful potential for Holden. And and Heidi, do you think that's a strike against the book that he was not trying to do that? I think that it's a book to be approached with caution for people who are easily swayed into darkness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and there are other books that have darkness in it that I wouldn't say that's true of, like Crime and Punishment. I don't think anyone's going to read Crime and Punishment and go out and kill their landlady. I really don't. So, um, but I, I do think that The Catcher in the Rye has like some sickness in it that has come through from the author. Now, I think it's, I think that if, again, if you have a very healthy functioning moral imagination, like I, I, I think that it's a good thing to read. But I, like I said, I would not hand this book to a teenager who's struggling. 
Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Which raises the question, how do you know if a teenager is (laughs) well-adjusted? Right. This is why I'm saying I do not think this is a book for teenagers. And I don't think it's going to ruin anybody. Like, we're actually just very resilient. I am not a legalist about books. Human beings, you mean? Yes, human beings are very resilient. Plenty of troubled kids will get you in the rye and not be ruined for life. Like, it's it's okay, but I wouldn't recommend it. I wouldn't say, I just think everybody should read this book. You wouldn't offer it as like a antidote to what ails you or a way of helping you uh, adjust to the world if you're yes. 16. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. I do think it is better read at a later, more mature time when, when I don't, I don't think that this book is going to help troubled adolescents navigate those hard waters. Hmm yeah hmm. so then pretty much all of american schools are doing it wrong is what you're saying <laughs> well i mean this is not news and with that <laughs> that's this week's show yeah. <laughs> seems like as good a place as i need to end tim do you want to add anything uh no i don't i don't i think there's so much more to say like I, I think next week we should at least touch on sort of like the Salinger myth. He's this kind of hermit in plain sight. And I, I, I'm really glad that we have not biographied this book. Uh-huh. I think we're good about that. And it's this of all of the books that we have read on this show. I think this is probably the easiest book to biography because of the myth around Salinger. Um, and I'm glad we haven't talked about it. I think we should probably just touch on it probably next week. So somebody who's listening, ask us a good question <laughs> about the author. Set us up. Put the golf ball on the cue on the on the what is it? Pin? The Whatever tea. it is. The tee. Tee it up. Yeah, I just revealed myself as not a golf player. <laughs> if you have questions about golf, I'd be happy to answer them. I I feel like he'd be golf. a good golfer, Tim. <laughs> I know. Oh, man, he's so you bad. totally would. No. Nobody's a good golfer for a long time. That's what I tell myself whenever I try to golf. Yeah. So, are you good, Heidi? I no, bet you terrible. are. I'm terrible. I'm terrible at golf. No, but Scott White loves golf, and I love Scott White. So I play golf, but it's good a sight to behold. So you should come golfing with us sometime. Yeah. I, and I Speaking try to laugh to whenever behold. I get angry. So I laugh a lot when I play golf. So. <laughs> so that's why PG Woodhouse wrote a whole book of golf stories. Yes. It's not, a, I mean, I almost said it's not a game. It literally is a game. <laughs> it doesn't feel like a game. So. When, you're, when you're doing it, it doesn't feel yeah. like a game. Uh, well, speaking of things that don't feel like games, I don't know why I said that exactly, but this show <laughs> is over. Um, we are going to be, uh, our next book is Anne of Green Gables, uh, speaking of transitions. So after next week's Q&A episode, we will dive into uh, uh, L.M. Montgomery's Anne of Green Gables, Lucy Lucy Maud Montgomery, I think, right? Um, and we're going to talk about the first... It's the first six or seven chapters. And I think this is a pretty quick read. Um, but this is our annual kind of uh, young person-friendly book. We try to do at least one every year that's at least um, at least family-friendly. If you So for people who like to listen with their kids, this, this should be a, a, a good opportunity to do that. Uh, whereas maybe Catcher in the Rye was uh, less so. Um, Anything we want to add? You guys, you guys said you're good, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Well, if you want to participate in the uh, in the conversation next week, again, make sure you head over to the Facebook page or email us at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. And then there is a newsletter, Close Read 
closereads.substack.com. And then of course, there's uh, the Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash closereads. And tomorrow we are going to be recording our third episode on crime and punishment. So we're uh, moving our way through that. So if you want to support the show, get your sweet show swag and also get access to these bonus episodes on, on crime and punishment, then you can uh, head over there and, uh, and uh, sign up for that. So I guess that's it. That's all the... It's all the, the links and all those different things that you can connect with us. Uh, thanks so much for listening and for, for uh, participating in this conversation about uh, the catcher and the rye. And uh, we will we look forward to answering and discussing your questions next week. For Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks for listening. And until then, happy reading. Happy reading.